and gentlemen, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. The World Cup semifinals have just wrapped. We have just witnessed football not come home. Croatia have knocked out England in extra time. Nathan Strauss, what are your first impressions of this game? My first impressions of this game um, are actually that all three of us in our predictions that we made in our kickabout, our new format where we discuss each game uh, in the form of a conversation and then post the article on our website, which can be found at cornerkickmedia.com. We were all correct in our own different Don't ways, plug right off but of that. yes, but I was I was particularly pleased with my own comments, unsurprisingly, um, about how England need to learn to play attacking football and not rely on set pieces and headers. As predicted, England scored one goal off a set piece, and that was actually their only shot on goal the entire game. Subasic didn't make a save um, in the entire game. In fact, it was Shime Versalco who played the hero in the second half of extra time today. Um, saving a John Stones header that would have put England in the lead. So, if anything, I think this tournament has given England a lot to build on for the future. It's shown that Gareth Southgate is definitely the man for them. Um, but I think it does leave us excited for the final between a true underdog in Croatia and a perennial favorite like France. There's only one conclusion you can draw from this game. Harry Kane is a fraud. <laughs> okay, for years now, every year we say he's a one-season wonder, a two-season wonder. We're always waiting for the game that demonstrates to us that it's all a mirage of quality. And today, we saw, and probably in the knockout stages of this whole World Cup, we saw the mirage of quality. I know in the quarterfinals, it was Raheem Sterling, who was sort of the villain for not putting away chances, but you can't ignore the fact that Harry Kane has not scored an open play goal in the knockout stages of the World Cup. He's still the top scorer in the tournament, but they're not in the final. And so what does that matter? I will say the other good thing about this result is that Danny Welbeck will not have the opportunity to win a World Cup, which I think a lot of people wonder. He, I don't think he played a minute. At he did tournament. not play a minute, but it doesn't matter. Did it if come on against Belgium? No, no, I know. I know what I'm saying is like he's literally the fourth choice striker both for England and for Arsenal. And it's like, why? I don't know. He's what's known as a locker room player. He's like the um the Al Jefferson of of soccer. Of soccer. Yeah. Yeah. I think my takeaways from this game are that Croatia are a team with perhaps the most heart I think I've ever seen compete at one of these major tournaments. They've come back from a 1-0 deficit in all three of their knockout stage games up to this point. And I think they deservedly shown that they need to be in the finals of this tournament. They absolutely need to be in the finals of this tournament. They bludgeoned Argentina 3-0. They really neutralized all their group stage opponents. And even if they may have gotten fortunate against Russia with the penalty shootout win, I think a lot of heroes have emerged at Croatia. Daniel Subasic saving two penalties with a hamstring injury against Russia. Sima Vrshalsko playing through the pain to start this game after coming off against Russia, really looking badly hurt. I think uh, while the nation of England was really optimistic about this young team's chances, I think we speak a lot about Belgium's golden generation. I think it's Croatia's golden generation that we should be speaking about. Players like Modric, Rakitic, Brozovic. I could really go on and on and on and talk about their quality, but I think... While often they've shown their quality at previous tournaments, this time they showed heart. 
And speaking of heart, let's talk about um, the other semifinal. Wait, wait, can I give my man oh, of the match? Oh, oh yeah, wait. give your man of the match. <laughs> the magic spray. <laughs> okay. Saving Mandzukic. Saving Mandzukic. So as we discussed in our kickabout, Croatia, literally half their team seemed to have some kind of hamstring injury by the end of the game. But luckily, the Croatian physios were able to reverse engineer the attack, the, the doping attacks by Russia. <laughs> and allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> and they were able to bring everyone back to fullness. But Mandzukic, this 33-year-old man has put in so much work this tournament. And, you know, the England players essentially carried him off the field when his legs just gave up at the end. But, you know, credit to the Croatian physios, credit to a topical anesthetic. Yep. You know. And it all worked out for him as he ended up scoring the winning goal, uh, squeezing a finish by England's best player all tournament, in my opinion, in Pickford. Jordan. Jordan Pickford. Jordan Pickford. I think what a time for England to fall asleep in defense. I mean, I feel like you really can't do that. It's I mean, again, live by Trippier, die by Trippier. Really? It wasn't even Trippier's fault. It was Harry Maguire and John Stones who f- fell asleep and let Manjuka just kind of like glide. He really past just go- Yeah, he ghosted. Yep. Yeah, it was pretty shoddy defending. Um, mm-hmm. And England really only have themselves to blame for not mustering more of an attack. Um, although the good thing about England, though, is that they really flipped the narrative of pessimism that radiated from their football club after Roy Hodgson was sacked and Gareth Southgate was appointed. Um, I think there no, was Sam Allardyce. Sorry, yeah, Sam Allardyce. After that, you seem <laughs> so irrelevant that I forgot about him. No, it's because oh, he, he was uh, caught up in the corruption. The corruption thing. Yeah. 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 But I think the Iceland from the Iceland defeat to now. I think it's taken a good long two-year spell for uh, the England national team to finally have a good moment and a good tournament and a tournament where they can take a lot more positives and negatives from. In my opinion, I think all, pretty much the core of this team will be around for uh, several tournaments to come. Yeah. And obviously now they have the, uh, the European Nations League. But what do you think the headlines to? are, like, in England tomorrow? Are I mean, they positive or are they negative? From what I've seen so far, they're largely positive because it made, they made a country believe again, I think, is the narrative that the press are going with, which I think is fair because, obviously, England come in simultaneously thinking they're going out in the knockout stages and winning the tournament. And this is kind of a happy medium that showed that anything is possible. Um, and I think one last note on England is that they happen to have won the U20 World Cup. Yeah. And they do. England consistently produce good, good youth players. Although many of them end up sort of petering out at the club stage. But even players like Ruben Loftus Cheek, mm-hmm. who were in this squad, and Ryan Sessegnon, who's unproven so far, but will have this season in the Premier League to, to show that he's worthy of being included. You know, and and obviously Stones and Maguire are still young enough to have two more, three more major tournaments in them. England should have an, a steady enough flow of, of youth players to be able to make this a sustainable. A sustainable side. And I think the this might be a bit controversial, but I think the one thing that England fans do need to work on, especially tabloid newspapers and people like Piers Morgan, Patriots is to Morgan. get off the back of their young sort of black players True. who do experience a lot of sort of like targeting in the media. Because like I feel like more people are going to be talking about the fact that Raheem Sterling was substituted in the second half after not doing anything rather than Harry Kane's form. In England, just because the English media, even coming into this tournament, based off of the Raheem Sterling whole gun tattoo fiasco, is so focused on targeting their players who aren't like white, English, like national-based players. So I think coming together as a unit, as a unity, 
and just sort of not having that prejudice that we've seen before will be important going forward to a single team. I know that might be a bit controversial for this podcast, but I think it really is key. No, we're the wokest <laughs> soccer podcast. Yeah. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It's true. Anyways, moving on to the second semifinal match between France and Belgium. For me, this was a match that really didn't live up to the hype. Um, I know, you know, Nick, I disagree. you... I think it lived you, up to all the hype. I think, well, you as a France supporter probably see this match at a bit of a different angle with a little bit of bias. But the thing that's really struck... Uh, the thing that's really been interesting to me has been seeing the Belgian players' um, post-match reactions. You know, Eden Hazard slammed France for not playing football. Um, and I think even you, Nick, are probably ready to admit that, that Belgium played much better for the entirety of the match than France. I really am not ready to admit that at all. Really? Yeah. I think I was reading... Round one. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading an interesting piece... Um, on the ringer this afternoon, the Bill Simmons. Yeah. Uh, uh, they're doing like a lot of World Cup coverage, especially with their Ringer MC podcast and stuff like that. So I was, I was reading one of their articles this afternoon. <laughs> but why would you listen to the Ringer MC <laughs> podcast when you could be listening to Corner Kicks? <laughs> That's true. Um, but I was reading one of their articles and it was titled um, Defense uh, is like the best form of attack. Or it's just talking about like the positives of this being like the set piece, quote unquote, the set piece World Cup. And the fact that um, late winning goals or late equalizing goals from center backs in sort of defensive play have been the crux in the theme of this World Cup. And like what, have, what successful teams have done in this World Cup has been to play really, really narrow and compact defense like your Uruguay team played um, and capitalize off of opportunities from set pieces, which England showed and France have shown in their last three games. Um, in their three knockout stage games, uh, the winner or the tying tying goal or winner has been scored by a defender, French defender. So we have Pavard in the Argentina game, Varane mm. against Uruguay, mm. and Umtiti uh, against Belgium. So I think what France have displayed is a unified defensive front that will flow through their midfield, through attack, and also be a danger physically on set pieces. So I think, like I said in our kickabout, if you're good. Elite, in fact, in one phase of play, then at a World Cup where the thinnest margins define victory, then I think that sometimes it's not about playing the most attractive soccer. It's about doing the thing that you are lead at to get a result. Caleb, what's your take? I think this game best demonstrated how good Griezmann and Mbappe are. Because when we're talking about sort of France's defensive style, is they play a 4-2-3-1 on attack that has Blaise Matuidi, who's, you know, through-and-through-box-to-box through box midfielder with not much of a goal threat on the left wing. And, you know, he had, like, five or six tackles against Belgium. So, like, he did his defensive work. And Giroud hasn't had a shot on target, I think, this entire tournament. And so, really, Griezmann and Mbappe have been, like, driving the sort of non-set-piece offense of this team. And Pogba as well. And Pogba as well. And in particular, I think Mbappe, this was his coming out, not only as an attacker, but just as, like, a complete player. He didn't have a single shot against Belgium. And he still had seven dribbles, but he had six key passes. He set up six Including shots. Including the Ooh. most, the nastiest pass I've ever seen in my entire life. Filthy pass. It was, yeah, it's unreal. Yeah. yeah, my point is, like, we've seen such a development from him this World Cup. Not only is this, like, young player who, you know, gets a few goals, and sometimes that can get a player in a team for a few games, but they're not actually good. Like, I think Federico Makeda. Oh, for, true. Um, for United, United back yeah. in the day. Um, 
But I don't know. I was I'm very impressed with this French team because they're so pragmatic about what tournament play means. Um, There's almost a German esque sort of element to them, and like a very right. like, robotic way that they conduct business. They, they still have fun though, which is nice. And TT with the with the shimmy. Right, and the thing is, like, I would so much rather have like Mbappe and Griezmann be like the foils of my team than Muller and Ozil. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think this is. The way that French France have performed, it's really a credit to Didier Deschamps, mm. who we think is really he's he's not the most acclaimed manager in the world, but I think he's done a good job of of recognizing problem areas for this French team mm. and playing players. Caleb was talking about um, in our last podcast mm-hmm. about the the benefits of playing players in position. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Deschamps has done that, with the exception of recognizing that France were weak on the left-hand side defensively, right. thus playing Matuidi on the left-hand side, and having him tuck in with Pogba and Conte to defend against teams like Uruguay and Argentina. And what's important there is playing Matuidi out of position was a purposeful tactical choice, not a kind of like necessity to put 11 people on the field in a formation. Mm-hmm. Which, which is, is exactly what, what Belgium fell victim, fell, fell victim to. Yeah. You know, Belgium... It's been well known that their squad is highly imbalanced in favor of attackers uh, with a huge deficiency in terms of the wing-back department. And this has been going on for eight years now, Yeah. Um, ever since the start of this golden generation, um, which is why the switch to playing three at the back makes a lot of sense for them, and it, it got them so only so far because, you know, Nasser Chadli, not a left wing-back, you know? Like, you can't rely on him to do your defensive work. And He's you beforehand, a, we, we talked in every article and every podcast... <laughs> literally every yeah, podcast ever go about the deficiency of Yannick Ferreira Carrasco as a left as a left, left wing back. back. Yeah, um, you can maybe run that on FIFA with success, but unfortunately, the World Cup is not a video game, and you can't play an attacking left midfielder at left back. Right. Yeah. And so I want to clarify my earlier point about Belgium playing better soccer. I think I think Eden Hazard was the most explosive player on the field. Yes. Yeah. Although I think the comment that I was going to make on that is that after the game against Brazil, I think Belgium sort of fell victim to their own egos somewhat. Like the, the win against Brazil filled them with a lot of belief, as it should have. But I think Eden Hazard let it get to his head a little bit because oftentimes he would pick up the ball, make a dribble, but then eventually be closed down by two defenders and he would wind up in the corner with no outlet to escape. And this happened like four or five times in the second half. Lukaku got very minimal service, which was disappointing to me as somewhat of a neutral in this match. Um, well, and the service he did get, though, he completely messed whipped. up. Right. There were at least two chances, two crosses I can think of where he should have got ahead to it and he missed entirely. Right. All, I, all I'm saying is I think had Belgium been a little bit more methodical and a little less reliant on the brilliance of Eden Hazard, they might have had a better chance. And obviously, you know, Witzel had a nice shot from distance um, and Courtois made a great save, but I was not sorry, not Courtois. Lloris made a great save, mm-hmm. but if Belgium can't finish, they're never they were never going to win. But the I, whole point I, is, yeah. Belgium, there is no method to their madness. Right, that's the whole. That's like the whole point. And we know that about Martinez, though. Right. Yeah. No, that that's why he got right. sacked at Everton. He was like, if I play Kevin Morales, <laughs> yeah, he will. We will score. And Kevin Morales is like what back in the Greek league now. Yep. Right? For AK Probably getting held up by, you know, opposition team owners yeah. on the field. The only ba- I think the only thing that marred this game from being a great game, aside from the lack of goals, was Mbappe's absolutely disgraceful time-wasting at the end of the game. For me, that was really a dark cloud. It was a blemish on what's otherwise been 
pretty much a perfect tournament from the player who I believe is going to become, you know, the heir to Ronaldo's throne um, on the global stage. Mm-hmm. Ronaldo's and, throne? Ronaldo's. Because he's not a similar player to Messi. I'm talking about playing styles. Mbappe, at the very end of the game, in added time, took the ball away from a Belgian defender, dribbled it into the box, faked, dribbled it more into the box, faked again, and then dribbled it more into the box, wasting around 45 seconds and then getting a booking and a very stirring lecture. And then he gave the cheekiest apology um, to the media afterwards. I think and I, No, but I think there's a difference between normal time-wasting where you kick the ball away and then like sure. taking the ball from a player, like tackling a player, dribbling around in the box at the end of a World Cup semifinal. Like, to me, it just seemed very disrespectful, and it was less gamesmanship and more um, disrespect. Is as disrespectful as Luis Suarez? Not okay, this is not an argument. <laughs> this, is, this is definitely not an argument Luis for this podcast. Is deliberate handball. Like it's, got, it's, the same, it's the same sort of... It is. It is, essentially. It's the same sort of thing. No, because time-wasting isn't in the laws of the game, and handballs are. So time Suarez isn't the laws card? of the game. You can get a yellow card for time-wasting. At the ref's discretion. I would describe that as a clear element of the game. Okay, but we have six-second rules for go. I, I don't know, but I think I think you do what you need to do to win, and France won. And I think Suarez what, did what he needed to do as well. And you're like, going by one. one. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I think what's happening here, perhaps, and we're not is, condoning cheating by any means. No, but I think I mean, what's I happening here, perhaps, is that we're seeing the emergence of. Mbappe's personality as a superstar. And maybe that's not who you want. Maybe he really is the heir to Ronaldo. He's but a I mean, complete dick. I hope, he right? tra- I hope he trends towards Messi and away from Neymar. Okay. So what are your predictions for the final now between a clearly dominant France side and a resilient, strong, passionate Croatia team? I think it's going to be a narrow win for France is what I... I, as much confidence I ha- as I have in this sort of complete French package that's been put together and that's sort of evolved from the group stage to the knockout rounds, I think Croatia's... I've never seen a team more motored by willpower. True. But at some point, I think wear and tear has, is going to come in. Because, like, uh, Croatia have now played three extra time in the past 10 days in a row they're the first team ever to progress from three you know extra time games ever in the world cup and they already went into the england game having played almost a full game more and considering they're now they played 24 hours later than france their team is already suffering from wear and tear strinich had to come off you know piverich came piverich piverich yeah he came on and did very well actually no he did well but my point is we've talked about this before Croatia's starting 11 is good, and they work well together, but they don't have the depth to sustain major injuries. Luckily, you know, Brozovic, Modric, and Rakitic are all fit and healthy, um, and that's super important. But even then, I think the, the concept of facing Pogba, Conte, and Matuidi, who are just a different, more sort of physical, powerful, in addition to, like, technical midfield, is so different than, like, Deli Ali. Lingard and mm. Henderson in midfield True. that if that wear and tear could really come out here because they're facing such a physically strong group. And the interesting thing to think about is that England's superstar midfielders like Dele Ali, they weren't tracking back to do like the defensive grunt work that Paul Pogba, that Deschamps has managed to get out of Paul Pogba. Yeah. A lot of Paul Pogba's work against Belgium was behind the ball, mm-hmm. getting into position, 
making crunch tackles, doing sort of unpogba-like things. He's perhaps not been the flashiest player at this World Cup, but he's been so pragmatic and unsuperstar-like to the benefit of France. And I think that's something that Croatia haven't faced before. Superstars that are willing to sort of buy into the system. Yeah, I think that as much as I want Croatia to win, I see this game playing out in one of two ways. I think it's very possible. Well, no, I think it's very possible that <laughs> Croatia get the first goal, um, that, that France are sort of lulled to sleep and that Croatia get the first goal and then France come back and score three or four times over the next you know, 60, 80 minutes or however, however long it takes. We haven't seen France play in sort of a complacent way yet, though. I know, but for some reason, whenever I see these kinds of underdog matches, like, I always think of, you know, Croatia getting a set piece in the fourth minute and scoring off a Mandzukic header from a corner. Sure. Like, I can just see, I can see that happening. I don't think it will, but it might. And the other way I see this going is France wearing out Croatia for 60 minutes with possession, and then Croatia making subs, and then France scoring two or three times in the last 20 minutes to put the game to bed. France are also so comfortable... Just sitting back and waiting for Griezmann and Mbappe to attack on the counter. They're also so capable of doing this and taking the ball away from Croatia and playing possession-based football for ten minutes and then switching back to playing counter. And their depth is amazing. And I think, I think it's very unlikely that Croatia take the lead. For just looking at the past, they in all of their knockout games so far in this World Cup, they've had to come back from one zero down. Um, and so I think it's unlikely that they're the first team to score. You talk about a fourth-minute set piece. Well, that was England against them today. That wasn't Croatia. Like, I don't know. I think France take the lead. I think Croatia find a way to get back in the 60-odd fifth minute. But then I think France just take it away. Because the thing is, France can turn it on. France can take off Matuidi and they can put on Dembélé. They can put on Lamar. Fakir. They can even put on Tovan if they really wanted to. Just for, I, I mean... That would require many things to happen, but yes. My point is, this French team is so incredibly adaptable that it's hard to identify a weakness. Mm. And people talk about sort of the, the positive vibes radiating out of the England camp, seeing them like ride around on like unicorn Unicorns. floaties in the pool. I think, while perhaps there haven't been the unicorn floaty images within the France camp, this French team, there's no like generational gap that sort of condemned the German team to failure. You know? There's, there's no dissent that we've come accustomed to in the French national team set up in the past. I think this France team is unified. They buy into Deschamps' system, and they buy into one another. They believe in one another. There's a lot of camaraderie there. I think a lot of that has to do with Pogba and Griezmann and the fact that their star power hasn't overshadowed anyone else. Um, they, they're just... There's a feeling of unity and there's a feeling of belief. And while Croatia have that as well, I think France have more quality in their system. And I think you can't overlook the fact that Bastille Day is, is on the Saturday. day before the final. And so there's going to be so much national pride, so much chauvinism in their play that I, I don't think you can have... France already, in my opinion, are greater than the sum of their parts, which are already amazing. But I think coming after the Bastille Day, it's going to be... Rocking. It's all that egalite and yeah. the fraternite. And yeah, Caleb, lots you, of fraternite. Yeah, you, you said it best. Perhaps Belgium, we've been waiting for them to succeed. France are ready to succeed now. Yeah. And they're showing that they're ready to succeed now. I have I have somewhat of a philosophical question, philosophical question rather, oh. that I've been thinking, I've been sort of wrestling for the past few days. 
this is pretty much the first time in the World Cup that we've seen a final between one major power and one sort of very, very clear underdog. Just to get background, Croatia are the second smallest country by population to play in a World Cup final. Yeah. Right. The With four, they, yeah, and, and France have a population that's more than 1,200% greater than that of Croatia. Yeah. And I was wondering, for a fan, you know, do you prefer a matchup like this, or is the World Cup really designed to eventually showcase a, you know, Brazil, Argentina, England, Germany, France, Spain, Portugal, or Netherlands type side? Or, you know, like... Should the World Cup be producing these kinds of matches in the final, or is the World Cup ostensibly designed to always have two powerful nations meet? I mean, I view this, and I've talked sort of privately to those of you about this a little before, about how this is so much like, like March Madness this year, and that you have UVA go out in the first round to the 16th seed. I don't even remember which team UMBC. it was. UMBC. That team. And it's like, oh my god, there are so many upsets. But at the end of the day, Villanova still wins. And I think, so I guess your question is more who should be in the final itself. And I think this World Cup is a little weird in that teams on the right side of the bracket, like Spain and Germany, just like flamed out way earlier than people could have expected. And there's definitely another scenario where like instead of Sweden-Switzerland being the first round of 16 game, it's Germany-Switzerland. And suddenly you're left with, you know, quarterfinal games that are Spain-Croatia and then England-Germany. And so it starts to work its way more towards a final that you'd normally expect. Whether it's right or wrong that Croatia are in the final, I don't know. I think the World Cup should crown the best team, which really is only a short list of, like, five teams or so. And I think it will. I think soccer is such historically obsessed sport there's sort of a lot of fixations surrounding records and taboo and sort of like the figures of the past and the history of the past that we've sort of become accustomed to all these big nations with footballing pedigree playing for the highest honors I think like Caleb said the World Cup is meant for teams with eventually the best football to win the tournament and Croatia have played arguably the best fo- the second best football to get to the stage of the tournament they beat Messi and Argentina 3-0 they coasted to the group stage and while it haven't looked especially dominant in the knockout rounds they do deserve to be here albeit on penalties but they also beat an England team that had the sort of catchphrase of the summer football's coming home and took took the world by storm, and Croatia just sort of spoiled that narrative by playing better soccer. I think you take a team like Uruguay, who is such a small population, but produce some of the world's elite footballers. They deserve to be on the highest stage of international soccer because they produce some of the world's footballers, not because they're the perennial underdog. I think the best football always rises to the top, and right now it's Croatia and France, and I think if say, like, Iran produces the next, like, elite soccer player. Iran should be competing in, like, the world, in the final stages of the World Cup. It's about quality for me. It's not about, like, the underdog story. And that will always be, especially in American sports, 
like Fox Sports is always talking about like the underdog story because that's such an American concept and that's something that Americans love to buy into. I think in soccer, soccer is the game where quality more often than not always wins out. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I think that one thing that this particular tournament has shown is the benefits of the current transfer market and how much it's expanded in the past you know, eight years. Um, England was the only team that had 100% of players playing in their domestic league, which I think is a really, really good thing for the sport. With the rise of popularity in soccer worldwide and also the, the rise in accessibility of soccer worldwide. And if we think about the fact that 48 teams are going to be playing in the World Cup in the future. Right. But my theory is that the more players from non-traditional soccer powerhouses can move to top five leagues in Europe, the better the overall quality of international football will be and the sooner the traditional hierarchy of, of international soccer can be adjusted, which is what we're seeing with Croatia, which has a side full of top-class players that play at the Barcelonas, the Real Madrids. Right. Milan. Um, the Milan, Exactly. And that's something that we, we wouldn't have seen, you know, certainly not in the 70s and 80s when European competitions were just starting to spring up and we were seeing sides like Dynamo Zagreb and Ajax produce players yeah. exclusively for the national team. Yeah. So I think transnational, the transnational club game has really aided this tournament in terms of entertainment value. And, and I don't in terms even of this question. have a bone to pick with the fact that the semifinal was pretty much a Euro 2018. I think it was entertaining. I think the fact that maybe there's a bit of a disadvantage with there being no South American team or maybe if even Japan, it's fine. Maybe even if, maybe if Japan um, beat Belgium and went through, it would have been fine. They would have been crushed by Brazil. <laughs> they would have lost 7-1. Like, but the thing is, like, the cream always rises to the top and this time it was for European teams. And I think just when you're framing it is like, our Croatia, this underdog... It's important to remember that, yes, they've never made it this far in the World Cup before. You know, only 14 teams have ever made it to a final. And yes, they only have 4.3 million people. But as Nathan pointed out, they still do have the quality. Like, they can field a whole midfield that exclusively plays for Barcelona and Real Madrid. You know, this isn't like Costa Rica almost making the semifinals in the 2014 World Cup, where, like, Brian Ruiz and that former Arsenal player... Joel Campbell. He's still still Arsenal. Okay. The f- my point exactly. Like, this, <laughs> no, this is a team that like has name players, right. right? And so, in the sense that yes, they're an underdog, sort of from a historical perspective, but on the pitch, they are very capable. And I so like you have to like kind of balance. The yeah. Two. And speaking of being capable on the pitch and moving away from the World Cup element of summer football, big news this week as a somewhat anticlimactic deal was wrapped up involving one of the world's top two players. Cristiano Ronaldo moving from Madrid to Turin, swapping Real Madrid for reigning seven-time Serie A champions Juventus in a $100 million deal. He joins on a four-year contract that it reportedly pays 35 million euros per year. What are your thoughts on this move? I think it was time, right? I think it was <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo. He had sort of done everything he could have done possible with Real Madrid. He is coming off of winning his third straight Champions League in a row with the club he had won. He's won two La Ligas. He's won Copa del Rey. Four Ballon d'Ors. Four Ballon d'Ors with Madrid. I think there's an allegory to be made with NBA superstar LeBron James swapping Cleveland for 
to Los Angeles Lakers and that he had sort of achieved everything he could possibly achieve with Cleveland. And I think once you do that, these players are, there's a reason why they are very successful is that's partly because they are hyper competitive people and they will always be looking for ways to continue to be newly competitive in creative ways. And I think Ronaldo is sort of exercising his power of being one of the world's greatest players going to somewhere where perhaps he can extend the longevity of his career in Italy, playing in sort of a league that's less faster paced, but he will also be competing with elite players in the European space. And time for the mad money portion of our podcast. Yep. You know, on the news of Ronaldo's transfer, Juventus stocks are going up, up, up. So make sure you get into this <laughs> speculation now before, you know, the world economy collapses. 85 cents a share. 85 cents a share. I'm thinking they could go to above a dollar. And <laughs> yeah. that, that truly would be wild. <laughs> that would be I think this is an incredibly savvy move by Florentino Perez and Caleb Real Madrid. Rhodes is a Barcelona fan. I am. I think Perez recognized that, you know, while Ronaldo's eventual destination is probably MLS, which will actually be absurd. There's no way, like, the league MLS could pay $100 million for them. But you know he's going to go to the Galaxy, right? And he's gonna... but the, No, but the MLS is never going to pay $100 million. That's true. No, they're going to get him on a free or they're going right. to... Right. So I think Perez did two things. A, he got a ton of money from this. And I think they've known that he was leaving for a while because they had a they made money in the transfer market last year. So they've been stockpiling money for at least a year now in preparation for something like this. Well, every year there's been sort of like the Ronaldo sweepstakes of like, oh, is he going to go back to Man United and reunite with Mourinho? Right. Is he going to go to the MLS? Is he going to go right. to even like But what I think this also sport. does do is it safeguards his legacy at Madrid because... He doesn't, there's, there's a scenario, it's unlikely that like suddenly he is awful this season mm-hmm. as like a 34-year-old. He was their top scorer. Last year? Mm-hmm. Even no, after I know. having a dismal three months. Yeah, no, the point is the like, he's definitely, you know, father time is slowly but surely slowing him down. And this way he doesn't end his Madrid career with a sort of quote-unquote bad season, which mm-hmm. is the type of thing that Madrid fans would jump on him because they love attacking their own players. Yeah, I think ultimately Ronaldo, like Zidane, stepping down, um, while obviously the circumstances are different, the, the end result is the same. Ronaldo leaves Madrid after nine years of true domination. Um, I would, would, would posit that he's been Madrid's greatest all-time ever player, or at least certainly in the conversation, you know, with Ronaldo and OG Ronaldo and Roberto Carlos Zidane and Zidane, right. And I think by moving to Juve, he does give himself some extra years of his playing career as well as some extra money. I think it also helps his legacy in that he's now played in three different leagues, three of Europe's top Mm. four leagues, or really, you know, depending on how you rated the Bundesliga back in the early 2000s, the three top leagues in Europe over the course of his career. I do think, though, that this move will be frowned upon if he can't deliver a Champions League title to Juventus. I think, interestingly enough... Um, Finish your point. I'm saying that, interestingly enough, um, he doesn't have to worry about securing a league title for Juve. You know, they've won seven in a row. But it's they are. Not, 
They're going to win eight in a row. They have Ronaldo. But he doesn't, what I'm saying is he doesn't have to worry about it. It's not, there is no Barcelona to compete with Juve. Yeah. Sure. Right? Even Napoli, in their greatest all-time season, with 91 points. No, no, you're saying they don't have to worry about it in the sense right. that, like, it's inevitable. Not, right. Not that, like, it's okay if they don't. Right. And we yeah. all know that Ronaldo is a big game player. And Juventus certainly have a talented enough side, especially with any further additions, like the potential addition of Sergei Milinkovic Savic, to win a Champions League. But it's something that's eluded Juve for a very, very long time. And I think that this move will ultimately be considered a success if they can deliver that title. I think the league is very much so secondary to Juve in the same way that in the past five years, it's been secondary to Real Madrid. My question is, there's, it seems to me that there's no way that Lopetehui took the Madrid job not knowing that Ronaldo was leaving. I agree. And so... That just adds like a whole nother layer to like why did they bring him in? Why did they pull him out of the Spain national team? Like, what was the sort of underlying philosophy of all these changes? And what it points to me is he's going to be in charge of this like huge Spanishization of Real Madrid, right? They already bought Odriozola, of course. The advent of Isco could be right around the corner. Right, but what what Spaniard comes in and fills Ronaldo's void? Because there isn't one. You know, I don't think you are going to fill in Ronaldo's void. I think it's nearly impossible. I think, I think you can. I think Real Madrid over the past 12 years, over the past 20 years, have done a really good job of keeping a steady stream of Galacticos coming, each of whom ends up leaving you know, a bigger footprint than the last. Obviously, Ronaldo is leaving the biggest footprint of them all. Real Madrid will be able to find the superstar to fill his shoes, whether that's a combination of Eden Hazard and Lewandowski, you know, or adding a player like Icardi or Kane, or my favorite, clearly, would be Kylian Mbappe, who... That's my point, though, is that you're saying they need to buy smart in order to replace Ronaldo. So one, they can't replace him directly. Yeah. So this brings us to our next point, and right now there's sort of three potential-ish candidates emerging to replace Cristiano Ronaldo at his position, and who knows what else they're going to do to sort of supply the goals and assists that yeah. they're now lacking... Um, one of them is a former Barcelona man who grew up supporting Real Madrid as a kid. Yep. Uh, one of them is a young Frenchman who is on the precipice of World Cup glory, and one of them is Eden Hazard. <laughs> so let's start with Eden Hazard. He doesn't score enough. He's also not marketable in the same way that Neymar or Mbappe are. Right. Like, I think yeah. he definitely lacks both... Um, a certain physical element, like when you look at Ronaldo or even Mbappe and Neymar, they have, you know, very defined characteristics of how they appear. Not just what they do on the field, but like Mbappe, you know, has a huge global following. Neymar obviously has one of the most, some of the top um, social media interactions by number of any athlete in the world. Hashtag ramen hair. True. Although he did get more haircuts than he scored goals, which is another issue. Um, but... Hazard, for me, would only be an acceptable choice if they managed to bring in another player of equal quality, like, you know, Wantaway Lewandowski, who is, in my opinion, a top three striker in the world. And I think between Hazard's playmaking and Lewandowski's finishing, that's more than enough, or maybe not more than enough, but it's certainly enough to replace the on-the-field qualities of Ronaldo. I do think that it doesn't really fit Madrid's club philosophy of signing, you know, a Galactico which is a player who both has ability and marketability. My question is, do they re-anoint like Gareth Bale 
or do they put or is there a presser like next week some kind of preseason presser where Gareth Bale's like the player they choose and like he suddenly is thrust as like the new right. face because that was always the kind of the idea mm-hmm. like implicitly but I don't know if they're actually going to do that what do you think I think you need to bring in someone with the market like not obviously you're not going to get someone with the marketability of Ronaldo perhaps even Gareth Bale I think you do need to bring in someone like Mbappe and while they're not probably going to get Mbappe because his transfer, his permanent transfer from Monaco is being finalized this summer uh, to PSG, I think getting someone like, someone with sort of the same sort of visibility in League uh, or the Premier League is necessary. While they could, obviously, I think Gareth Bale becomes the focal point of this team, they, they do need someone with that sort of Mbappe-ish marketability. Hot take. Mario Balotelli. No. <laughs> no, he already went to Marseille. It's, it's Martin Odegaard's world. Jesus. We're just living <laughs> <laughs> That's your name I actually just forgot about. No, it's I think... actually indecent. Oh, no, no, no. That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you... You can fill the left mid void, or the left wing void with Eden Hazard and have it be sort of understated and reanoint Bale and sort of kill two birds with one stone. Or Real Madrid can put their big Spanish money on the table and go Coins. get... Cajones on the table and get Neymar da Silva Santos Jr. Right. And I don't think that's very likely this season, although I think it's been pretty much in the card since the day that he left Barcelona that he would someday end up at Real Madrid. Just in terms of economics... Caleb Rhodes is shaking his head. But I think, Caleb, you admit that that's true, correct? Oh, no, no, no. I'm shaking it out of just like a... Right. Intense disappointment in his character. Because there, really, there are really three clubs in the world that can afford Neymar. Manchester United... Oh, Manchester City. Manchester United. Yeah, he wouldn't look good in the red. Doesn't no, fit his tone. He wouldn't. Um, Can you do that with Colby Not I, anymore. They were relegated. relegated. <laughs> I, the is, I also don't really see Neymar ever ending up in the Premier League. I, I don't think it fits his style of play very well. I also don't think he needs the Premier League to cement his legacy, which is something that sometimes players from the other top European leagues need to prove themselves. I think that Neymar ends up at Real Madrid maybe in a year, maybe in two years, but. They need to buy someone. They really do need to buy someone. No, some I, I fully that's think... That's my no, thinking. I think they're going to end up with Icardi and Hazard. Like, that's, because, that would be my, that'd be my because guess. because Real Madrid, if you're saying that they Lobotuki wouldn't sign on to, to take the Real Madrid job without knowing that Cristiano Ronaldo was leaving, then they must have a plan in place. They can't just be, like, floundering around. No, that's my after, point. And the weird thing is, like... Luis Suarez left Liverpool, and Liverpool were floundering around for transfers. And, like, and it, it wasn't like Madrid were, like incredibly forced to do this either like yeah. all of this seems like it's part of this like plan and like this is just the mm. first step in the dominoes and i don't know maybe tomorrow maybe after the third place game hazard gets announced which is it's honestly like hard for me to be hard for me to believe that they don't already know who's right and who's i think it might be a hard season for madrid fans because yeah. I'm not sure that they have the quality they to actually win, win a trophy. League. They're definitely not winning the championship. Oh, they're not going to win any trophies. You're right. Right, they're not going to win a trophy, right? Because Barcelona should sleepwalk to the title next year yeah, with a fully emerged Arthur midfield with Arthur. I'm going to get Thiago. <laughs> right. I mean, rip Paulinho. Yeah, but but I think home. I think that Real Madrid right now need to do something that they're, they've never really been good at um, since Franco was in power, and that's plan a little bit for the future. And I think they do have two emerging young wingers coming in in Rodrigo and Vinicius. But as has been pointed out to me repeatedly, they're not proven talents yet. You know, they don't even have the pedigree that Neymar had when he left Santos for Barcelona. And I think that 
really dumb at the end of the season. When Vinicius scores no, like no, 30 no. goals? No, no, no. When Asensio has scored 45 goals from oh, the left wing. Dude, I forgot about him. But I don't think I, I don't think that he has the potential. Unless he I, moves to Liverpool. <laughs> 127 no, million. No, no. Guys, Iago Aspas to Real Madrid. If he was like three years I mean, he could also... I mean, he fits a top club's profile in that he gets them for registration purposes, like for, for yeah. European yeah, yeah, yeah. purposes, and he also has the quality. But anyways... Um, I think that the goal for Madrid should be to use this season to develop a consistent style and to find a rotation that works so that way when they do add Neymar or Mbappe next year or whoever their target ends up being, that they can go on and become the same superpower that they've been in Europe for the past 10 years. And that means, you know, rotating the season, playing Danny Ceballos, getting rid of, phasing out Benzema. Um, Real Betis are going to obliterate Real Madrid. It's a hot take, but it's They beat him last year, too. That's what I'm saying. They're going to... This is this is Betis' season. <laughs> Betis, Betis are gonna finish in third place in the Liga. I think so. They might. Yeah. It's gonna go Barca. Really it's gonna go Barca, Atleti, Atleti, Betis, also, Valencia, Real Madrid. Hot take. Fifth Atleti, place. Atleti are really gonna give Barca a run for their money this hot year. Hot take. Lamar. I, no, Lamar, <laughs> Griezmann saying for good. Diego Costa getting a full season to play with Griezmann in attack. They need this a team could be sick. Oh wait, they, no, they got the guy, Rodri. They got Rodri. They also still have Koke and yep. Saul, who are still somehow twenty six and twenty seven, which great. is impossible because they've been that they've been like in their twenties for the past ten years. Mark Bartra and Lucas Hernandez is now a fully developed elite defender on the world stage. Lucas Hernandez, the Frenchman, wee oui, wee. Oui. And yeah. Simi Vershalko has been Simi sick this too. Okay. And uh, so, do you want to do one minute on Arsenal? Yeah, let's do a quick Arsenal recap. Hey, Arsenal has had a. Arsenal have had a very un-Arsenal-like summer so far. Um, I'm very pleased with how this window has gone. They've pretty much ticked all the boxes. They bought Um, a random French player. They did. Well, so they bought Bern Leno to take over um, in goal. They bought World Cup standout and one of my favorite players, Lucas Torreira of Uruguay from Sampdoria. They bought Socrates Papastadopoulos to provide uh, cover in defense. They bought... Lich, they got Licksteiner that I have actually. They brought Licksteiner in for free to give some competition and leadership for Bellerin on the right. And recently they announced the signing of a young 19-year-old French midfielder, Guendozi from Lorient. Um, who looks to not be, to be confused with Guanduja, which tr- is delicious hazelnut chocolate spread. That is true. <laughs> but he'll, he'll, be, he'll be another rotational option for in midfield now that Jack Wilshere has ended his 13-year tenure with the Gunners. Nick, what are your thoughts on Liverpool? So Liverpool, we've done well in the transfer market so far, I believe. I think we still need to add a couple pieces. Uh, three days after the really just heartbreaking loss in the Champions League final to Real Madrid, Jurgen Klopp went out and signed excellent Monaco midfielder Fabinho, completely out of nowhere. Uh, definitely, bro. Uh, he's a beautiful, bald Brazilian man, and he looks to be an incredibly physically imposing uh, player, as he's well as being really technical in ball. I think he's the great uh, upgrade on Emery Chan, who left uh, to go to Juventus on a free transfer. Um, I think he's going to take a little bit to bed in the system. Player who's not going to take a little bit to bed in the system is Nabi Keita. Keita. He looks. He has looked a class above everything that every 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 Liverpool player has played. I've been saying this for years. In preseason, his touch is unbelievable. His physicality is unbelievable. The the movement that he makes off the ball is unbelievable. I think he is going to be a starter for day one, and perhaps end up being the first. He was anointed by okay. Steven Gerrard the number eight. Um, Liverpool. I think it's a no brainer. Go out and get Shakiri, especially if it's only thirteen or twelve million. And Don't you need do a keeper. You need a keeper in a bad and way. And Loris Karius looks. To be completely devoid of any confidence at all, he d- 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 just dropped a complete bollock against Tranmere Rovers <laughs> and <laughs> let them concede a goal up a, a bobbling a set piece opportunity. Uh, Liverpool goalkeeper, uh, backup winger, really needs to be a priority. 
Well, I just got like auditory epilepsy from the speed <laughs> at which <laughs> you were talking. Uh, Barcelona have made one signing so far. Arthur seems pretty good. 95% pass accuracy in the Brazilian league. Um, and then we sold Paulinho back to Guangzhou. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> you, you loaned Paulinho back to Guangzhou. No, but it's a loan to buy. I don't know what happened there. This it's globalization, I don't understand. Yep. But I, he looks like that. He regardless, looks like regardless, this has been Corner Kick. We hope you enjoy. We'll be coming to you live after the World Cup final. Or at halftime. Or at halftime. Or all Check of it. Facebook Live. Yes. For a, a classic Corner Kick final. Yep. Uh, live stream. Make sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll have a lot of good articles and commentary coming And on Twitter, up. we do really good match uh, commentary as well. And, and also, if you've made it this far and you want to check out our website, we do have a feature that enables you to support us financially. You know, as we are constantly expanding, we do have a number of costs that come up to us, including website maintenance and advertising and the like. So there's a link that you can pay through PayPal or with a debit or credit card. Yeah. And we would much appreciate that. Thank you so much. This has been Corner Kick. Um, Viva I'm la Caleb France. Rhodes. I'm Nick Evinen. Viva la, Re- la République. I'm Nathan Strauss. Good night. Good night, everyone. Sleep tight. We'll see you on Sunday. Oh, <laughs>